He is strongly identified with rebels, you see, and very popular with rabbles. They will follow him, and he will fight to the last drop of their blood. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And welcome to the Doctor Who Show's Alternate Galaxies. This month we are looking at Blake's Seven. Thanks very much for inviting me. So for those who aren't aware, Richard is my longtime friend and co-host on the Goodies Pirate Podcast, and has also turned up as a recurring character in the 42 to Doomsday Podcast. <laughs> Not that that will be happening much longer. Richard, Blake Seven. It's good. It's very good. Let me say from the start, there are three TV shows that I have above Doctor Who. Two of them are the sort of classic stuff, you know, Brides Every Visited, I Claudius... But the other is Blake Seven, and that oh, is that okay. is to me. To me, it is just. I think one of the advantages is that it's only fifty-two episodes, so it's very condensed, and it doesn't have sort of twenty-six seasons to have weak ones and, and and strong ones. No, that's true. And if you do want to do a rewatch, yes, yes, you can do a rewatch in a relatively short space amount of, of time. time. Yep. But I think it also has the ability to go further than the Doctor in a few things. We'll, we'll discuss that, but suffice to say, I'm a big fan. We've got you along because between us, look, I don't know if there are bigger fans of Blake Seven in Victoria, but if they are, I want to meet them. <laughs> uh, we certainly won't be going into too much depth on this episode. For those who are not familiar with the Alternate Galaxies format, our aim here is to discuss a genre television series. If you have seen this series before or you're a fan of it, we hope you'll come along and enjoy the ride and see if your opinions match ours. But we also want to talk about it to those who've never seen it and might be thinking of checking it out. We'll talk about the good points, the bad points, how it compares to Doctor Who, how a Doctor Who fan might relate to it. And we'll be pretty honest and even give you some tips about watching it for the first time. So, Richard, what is Blake Seven? Well, I guess, I guess you can't really start talking about Blake Seven without mentioning the name Terry Nation. Terry Dalek's Nation. Yes, or indeed Terry Nation's Blake Seven, as I think he's credited on pretty much everything. Yes, that's right. Coming off the back of Survivors at this point? Uh, would be, yes. I think uh, the, the off-told story is he had gone into the BBC to pitch new story ideas. His version was that the BBC didn't really like any of the ones he'd pitched that he'd actually written down and gone in to pitch, and he came up with Blake Seven really on the spur of the moment. Yeah, and his description of it was basically Robin Hood in space. Yes, or indeed the Dirty Dozen in space. Yeah. So it ran on the BBC in the UK from 1978 to 1981. There were four series of 13 episodes each. That's right. One point to really make at this point is that compared to the last two series we've looked at, Buffy and Babylon 5, Blake 7 really was a mainstream show. 
Like, it was regularly rating 8 to 10 million every episode. Yes. And for part of that, Doctor Who was getting down to 5 to 6 million. So it was it was very much a mainstream hit. You know, lots of people watched it. It was talked about at the workplace. And a lot of people from that generation still do remember it. They do. And I, I think the final episode, I think the stat usually given is the final episode was, was somewhere around 10 or 11 million viewers. Yeah. Which isn't bad for a little sci-fi show. No, particularly one that had its fourth season commissioned just on the spur of the moment. So, <laughs> Now, we mentioned Terry Nation. He was the creator of it. He mm-hmm. wrote the first 14 episodes, That's right. as well as a number of others there. We mentioned this again in our last episode. He actually set the record for continuous episode scripting until JMS broke it with Babylon 5. In fact, JMS rather smashed it with Babylon 5. He did. The story Terry Nation used to tell about that was he went home and had the discussion with his wife, well, I've had a new series accepted by the BBC. Unfortunately, I agreed to write all of the first season. Yeah, look, I suspect that was partly a reaction by him to what had happened on Survivors where the uh, creative differences, shall we say, between his vision and Terence Dudley's vision um, <laughs> were manifest, and Dudley basically won that one. Yes. So he was very keen to have a lot of control. But the two other names we have to mention are Chris Boucher and David Maloney. Now, both familiar names again to Doctor Who fans. So David Maloney was quickly put in as the producer of the series. He directed a number of Doctor Who's, um, Genesis of the Daleks, Deadly Assassin, Planet of the Daleks, basically anything with Bernard Horsfall in it. <laughs> Who doesn't appear in Black Sea? No, that's right. Uh, so Maloney came off directing a lot of Doctor Who's and obviously other series to produce this. And then he was casting around for a script editor. Yes. He originally did what anyone would do in that situation and asked Robert Holmes. Yes, since he was uh, suddenly free, having just left Doctor Who. Yes, but Holmes said, look, he was tired of script editing, he just wanted to write, it had basically killed him doing Doctor Who. But I've just discovered this guy called Chris Boucher. He's just done three absolutely brilliant Doctor Who's, uh, Face of Evil, Robots of Death, and Image of the Fendal, and said, why don't you hire that guy? Mm. Which he did. And that turned out to be quite an astute move, I think. It it was, because I think Boucher's writing is absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um, The episodes he scripts later on are very, very good, but he's very good at taking Terry Nation's ideas and actually making them workable, and particularly doing the characters, because... Fair to say Terry Nation is very good at ideas and less good at characters. Yes, plus, I mean, there are regularly told stories about during the script writing process, it's you can either have rewrites on this one or you can have the next episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Or or indeed, his 45-minute scripts run to about half an hour when they go through them in the dry run. Yeah, so Chris Boucher actually had to write a lot of extra stuff for Terry Nation and ended up being very much the guy who wrote the Bible. And it's worth pointing out, he was one of the first script editors that actually had this concept of a, a show Bible, mm. where you'd sit down and say, well, look, this is the scientific gobbledygook they use, or this is the tech that they use. Or, that's right. And, and that's something I find with Blake 7, particularly in the first three series, the tech is very, very consistent. How far the ship can go without needing to recharge, how long they can operate their force wall, the distance the teleport operates at. All that sort of thing is actually very consistent compared to a lot of other shows, Mm. particularly in the 70s. Richard, how would you summarise the concept of the show in a couple of sentences? I guess the short concept really is the evil, oppressive federation against Blake and his crew of, in inverted commas, freedom fighters. Yes. So it is very much the Earth government and the Earth empire, for want of a better word, has now expanded out to a lot of of human space. 
it's evil and corrupt and oppressive, has heavy surveillance and drugs, a lot of its populace, to make them compliant. And, of course, Blake and his crew stand as the counterpoint to that. It is, but unlike something like Star Wars where the, in inverted commas, goodies are very nice, noble people, yes. it is actually a band of criminals. Yes, that's correct. All the characters are criminals. You have a thief and a smuggler and, and whatever you think Gan is. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that, the very least a murderer. Yes, that's correct. And these are your good guys. Yes. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Blake now because he's obviously the titular character. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a criminal as well, technically. Yes, well, I suppose he's a political criminal, and the basic setup for the series is that he has been a major rebel political leader some years prior to the commencement of the series, um, and he was taken away and put on a show trial, and then he was brainwashed and made to be a productive member of society. Four years ago, there was a good deal of discontent with the administration. There were many activist groups. But the only one that really meant anything was led by Rog Blake. You and I worked together. We were outlawed and hunted. But we had supporters, and we were making progress. Then someone betrayed us. I still don't know who. You were captured. So were most of our followers. They could have killed you. But that would have given the cause a martyr. So instead, they put you into intensive therapy. They erased areas of your mind. They implanted new ideas. They literally took your mind to pieces and rebuilt it. And when they'd finished, they put you up and you confessed. You said you'd been misguided. You appealed to everyone to support the administration and hound out the traitors. Oh, they, they did a good job on you. You were very convincing. And then... They took you back and erased even that. What happened to the others? In their benevolence, the Federation allowed them to emigrate to the outer worlds. Like your family, they were executed on arrival. So in order to deal with the Blake problem, because by killing him you would give the cause a martyr, to deal with the Blake problem, the Federation decide that the only way really to get rid of him is to completely and utterly discredit him. So, of course, they set him up on a number of falsified charges. Yes, involving children. Yes, and probably the more disturbing aspect there is not so much that they fabricate these charges, is that they actually take three seemingly random children and implant false memories of having been molested by Blake in order to make their charges stick. Yeah, so this, I think, demonstrates where Blake 7 was going in terms of its concept. And these are genuinely dark, nasty concepts. Very bleak, yes, concepts. And and, and this is an important point I want to expand on later on. So Blake is convicted falsely of molesting children. He's put on a convict ship out to a penal colony. And that's where he meets all his fellow criminals. Although the prison ship runs into a very advanced spacecraft from another civilization, they capture it, they escape, and basically from them they decide to go back and fight the Federation. Some of them under sufferance. <laughs> some, of them, some of them are true believers. Some of them are just there because it's the best way to survive, having yes. escaped. And that, again, leads to a lot of uh, dramatic tension. I think it's important at this point to mention the Liberator, which is the main 
Spaceship Fort series because the whole series kind of hinges on that spacecraft. And it is an amazing spacecraft. It is. It, it is an awesome design. It is, both inside and outside. So yes. they basically blew most of the special effects budget on designing that model in the first series. And the same with their set budget. I mean, that, that flight deck set is just... I mean, I don't think it stands up today compared to anything in you know, oh, Enterprise, it, anything like that. It is. It's very different, from really, from any other Starship set you see. And really, it is so big and so detailed. In the early episodes, they don't even actually have the full thing built yet. Mm. Um, they're actually using painted backdrops and, and sort of uh, lighting to try and hide the fact that the set's not complete in the early episodes. But it is a really iconic design. It is, and with a teleport function as well, which is very good for moving plots along, yes. shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll talk more about the crew shortly, but one thing we do need to say is the show does evolve over the course of four series. So we've got Blake, we've got his crew, who we'll discuss as we discuss the characters. We've got a ship, we've got the Federation. There's a lot that changes over four series, but I think we now we'll get into our more personal views of it. And I'll start off by saying, Richard, how did you discover this show? Well, probably sadly, actually, um, I'm old enough now to have watched it from day one. Um, I remember it started here in Australia in late March 79. It was on Friday nights after the two Ronnies. <laughs> <laughs> I did start with series one and then I did watch the series when it was on. I mean, it was only ever shown twice on free-to-air TV, one, one, one go through, one first run and then one repeat. They were all within a very short space of time. I think it debuted here in 79 and the last repeat of Series 4 was... Well, the only repeat of Series 4 was uh, finished in early 1985. So I, I think when I initially saw it, look, it, it was in that sort of halcyon period post-Star Wars where, of course, there were lots of new sci-fi shows and I, I watched them all. So initially for me it was probably just another space adventure series. But I did go through some rediscoveries. I rediscovered it again when I was a little bit older when it was repeated and then rediscovered it again when they released those first sort of heavily edited compilation tapes of the show, and then rediscovered it yet again uh, in the early 90s when they started releasing the complete series. Yeah, look, some of that echoes my discovery, although I'm not quite as old as you, <laughs> if, I, if I can put it that way. This is another show that I discovered through my dad, and I can remember just being home one weekend and he hired from the local video store the first two of those famous compilation tapes. Had, so had he sorry just to break it, had he watched it when it was on first run? Yeah, so he had watched it on first run and was a fan. He had okay. And then he saw these in the video shop. So just to explain to our listeners who aren't aware, the BBC released four compilation tapes and they were as I say, there were a number of episodes stripped together. In the first case, they took two hundred minutes of the first two episodes and edited it down to hundred and twenty. Yes. In the case of the other three volumes, they were three episodes, 150 down to 120, which wasn't too bad, although there were entire B-plots and plot threads that were just completely just gone. Yeah. yeah. So I watched a couple of those with him, and then we got the other two. We watched them. Uh, we may have made an illegal dub of them. <laughs> and at that point, because he'd been a fan, he had a number of the book, a couple of the novelizations that were released. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so Trevor Hole did the first four episodes as a book. Right. He then did the first three Travis episodes as a book and three of the first four episodes of Series 4, just mm -hmm. for some random reason, as a book. A bloke by the name of Tony Atwood, as you may remember, also did a book called Afterlife, which was a sequel to the show and was interesting. Yes. Then, then, there's, the, the, then there's Paul Darrow's books as well, uh, if you're getting into the novels. but We are, but we're, 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 we're <laughs> diverging. So I watched them. I fell in love with the series. I love the characters 
particularly as a kid, I loved the sort of the spaceness of it. You know, mm. there were there were cool space corridors and space commanders with space guns and all that sort of thing. And as a kid, you love that stuff. Mm. But as an adult, you you enjoy the characters more. And then when later on the BBC did release the whole series on VHS, I was either buying or borrowing and copying all those VHSs as they came out and just discovering the series. And I found I like the series more as I get older. Like it, it goes from just being a cool space adventure when you're a kid to a really good political thriller and character-driven show. Yeah, no, there is there's some, there is some very good material in there if, you, if you're prepared to dig a bit deeper. We'll talk now about what we like about the show and aspects of the show. At its highest level, what is it about you that keeps drawing you back? Because I, I know both of us regularly will pull out Black 7 tapes or Black 7 DVDs now and we'll, you know, we'll talk about them, we'll text each other, hey, I'll just watch this, and often find new stuff to talk about in them. What, what is it that makes you keep pulling them off the shelf? It's a very different tone of series, I, I think, than most other sci-fi shows. Probably not so much now where you get a lot of grittier, harder-edged sci-fis, but I, I think in, in terms of 70s and 80s, and, and probably even 90s science fiction, I, I think, to an extent, it does stand out as a very different show. As we sort of talked about with the Federation, it's quite bleak, and it's quite there against an oppressive government. It doesn't have the optimism, say, of the Star Trek series, and it doesn't really even have that that sort of, you know, the, the hero's going to come along and save the day that you get in Doctor Who. I mean, let's be honest, you, you know the Doctor is going to find a way to save the day, no matter what's going on. Here you do have instances where the characters lose. Some of them get killed along the way. Spoilers. But some of them get killed. Probably in terms of the universe, it's an arc series, and that's probably, well, it's a prototype arc series, shall we say. So there is a narrative you can follow, and the characters, some of them at least, do develop as we go along. And the one thing with it being a fairly loose arc at times is... If you're interested in universe building, there is a lot of scope in there for you to add your own interpretations and your own gap filling for the universe. So that that was an immediate attractor for me. And that and the bit about probably backfilling the universe, probably as I get older and watch it, you sort of try and make sense of it into a coherent narrative. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think a lot of that is particularly down to Chris Boucher, as we said, mm. who did want to have a consistent universe, a consistent narrative who did have a backstory for the characters in his mind that he would work on with some of the actors. One thing I want to really stress about what you said in there was talking about the Federation. One thing that really impresses me about this series is it genuinely explains what this Federation is, how it works, and how it affects the everyday ordinary citizen of the Federation. And I contrast that, and I always have contrasted that with Star Wars. Other than the big sort of cartoon villainy in Star Wars... You never really get this idea of, well, what, what's it like to live under the Empire? No. I mean, you're just told that the Empire's bad, and, and off you go. Yeah. Whereas in the first episode of Blake 7, we see corrupt officials. We see corrupt judiciary. As we said, they're willing to effectively implant memories of molestation in children mm. to frame a political criminal. Um, let's face it, there's, a, there's a, a massacre 15 minutes into the episode. Yes. Blake talks about how his family moved to the outer planets and he gets a you know, vis tape from them every six months, and he's told, well, actually, no, they were murdered the moment they stepped off the ship, and mm. they've been dead for five years or whatever. It really does establish this, this 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 oppressive regime that needs to be fought. It does. I mean, in some ways, it probably never gets quite that dark again 
in, in some ways, but that is a very powerful setup for the series. It, it is, and you you establish the members of that federation again, how it works, their military, how that works, or their space fleet, and then when you go to these other worlds, they actually then show what it's like to be a colony under the federation, to show what it's like to have been conquered by the federation mm. and you know enslaved by the federation. So it actually does do a lot of um very cool stuff there. Let's not go any further without mentioning Avon. Yes, well, the characters are, of course, a big deal for the series. And yes, one central character particularly. Well, I mean, Avon goes from being a member of the crew at the start to being the main opposition on the ship to Blake in sort of Series 2, and then takes over as the lead for Series 3 and 4. Show me someone who believes in anything, and I will show you a fool. I meant what I said on Goth, Avon. We are not going to use Star One to rule the Federation. We are going to destroy it. I never doubted that. I never doubted your fanaticism. As far as I am concerned, you can destroy whatever you like. You can stir up a thousand revolutions. You can wade in blood up to your armpits. Oh, and you can lead the rabble to victory, whatever that might mean. Just so long as there is an end to it. When Star One is gone, it is finished, Blake. And I want it finished. I want it over and done with. I want to be free. But you are free now, Avon. I want to be free of him. Look, he's played by Paul Darrow, or as we like to refer to him, the man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, look, Avon, Avon is a wonderful character, and I think most fans of Black 7 would identify him, if not as the key part of the series or make what makes the series work mm. as a very important part of it. Well, I think all the feedback they got from viewers and everything, uh, he becomes really the most popular character very early on. Yes. So he is incredibly cynical, incredibly selfish, incredibly focused on his own self-preservation. Yes. I am not expendable, I'm not stupid, and I'm not going. Intellectually superior to everyone around him, and he knows it. Yes. So he's originally on the prison ship because he was going to defraud the local banking system of five million credits. Well, his version is he's there because he relied on other people. (laughs) (laughs) Which very clearly sets him up as a very avaricious, greedy, selfish person. He escapes with Blake. He's standing next to Blake at the time that Blake makes his escape and gets away with him. And there's a very uneasy alliance between him and Blake for the first two series. He's particularly willing to needle Blake about Blake's mistakes, and he's basically ready to leave Blake at any point if he thinks that it's in his mutual interest. Mm. But, of course, once he gets on board the Liberator and works out just how great the ship is, there is, of course, this underlying narrative that he'll help Blake as long as he gets the ship when the Federation is defeated. Yes, or if he can get rid of Blake, he will keep the ship. (laughs) So, yeah, look, I mean, that's a very interesting character. I mean, famously... Paul Darrow and Chris Boucher got on very, very well. They were both big fans of spaghetti westerns and they would often sit there and watch the Sunday Night Western together and just go, that's a really cool line, let's use that or let's have Avon do this. Yes. Well, Chris Boucher did say, I think there wasn't a single line of Avon's that Terry Nation wrote, (laughs) although they didn't at least amend in some way. Yes. Only for Terry Nation later say he didn't realise he'd written Avon so well. Avon, of course, does take over as the main lead in the series. Yes. In series three and four. And and goes down a very interesting path in terms of um, 
basically becoming psychotic. Very much so, particularly in the last season. Yeah. Speaking of arcs, one of the things that really interests me about Black 7, particularly again as I get older, is Blake's arc itself. Mm. Because Blake starts off as very, very idealistic. He you know, truly believes in freedom, in doing good, in fighting evil. But as he goes on fighting the Federation for, well, it's two years in television time, but it's sort of implied to be about four or five years on the show, he becomes more and more of a fanatic and is willing to sacrifice more and more and sacrifice more of other people yes. to, get his, to get his goal. To, to the point where, where he is willing to consign what would be several billion Federation citizens to death simply so he can destroy their main computer complex. Yes, he, he is willing to sacrifice a lot. And, and watching him really evolve or devolve, depending on your point of view, from freedom fighter to fanatic. And, 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 and you know, we, we, we talk about this in the context today of terrorism and the like, to see him go from that more freedom fighter, lesser terrorist, to just outright terrorist, but being sympathetic with him the whole time is a really interesting character development, a really interesting arc. And watching the way the other characters deal with that as well, mm. and particularly some of them, like Jenna, like Callie, who suddenly realise how much he's willing to sacrifice to prove that he's right, is really interesting. Played by Gareth Thomas. Yes. Late the Gareth Late Thomas, Gareth Thomas, yes. Who was an RSC-trained actor, so a very, mm. very capable actor. And, and I actually think it's easy to underrate him because Paul Darrow plays Avon in a very over-the-top fun sort of matter. You know, you, you, you really get behind this guy, you're cheering with this guy. Gareth Thomas plays Blake in a much more subtle way, in a very Shakespeare actor sort of way, which I think helps because a lot of his very idealistic speeches wouldn't work if they weren't given in that sort of a, a tone, that, that really serious Shakespearean soliloquy sort of tone. Mm. Well, he does. And his arc is quite interesting. I mean, look, we should make the point that we did, I think I said a few minutes ago that this is a, a prototype arc series. There, there is no, in say like Babylon 5, where there was a, a five-year plan bef- before any actors were even hired or the first script was actually written. Because this is the 1970s, there is a, there is a narrative arc that runs through the series, but it's a very loose arc. There are some episodes that really probably sit at some variance to the arc, and there are times where they completely abandon it. But it is there if you want to look for it. It is, and there are a lot of non-arc episodes that just stand on their own. Mm. But particularly Series 2, and I really like Series 2, you, you do have this thing where Blake's mentioning the control computer, and it's, you know, we're going to get to there one day, and then you have the episode where he has his first attempt to attack the control computer, which is a, it, it, it goes disastrously, and he loses a member of his crew doing it. Mm-hmm. And then he needs to find where the control computer's been sent to, so he you know finds somebody who worked on security there, who points him to somebody who worked in other areas there, et cetera, et cetera. And it sort of takes him in the second half of the series to then find it and attempt to destroy it again. Yes. Now, in between there, as you say, there are a number of bits of the arc that don't quite work. There are a number of standalone stories. But there is this thread that goes through the whole series. There is. I mean, look, obviously, if you were doing Blake 7 now, it would be much tighter and it would be largely pre-planned. I mean, you yes. probably have a, not one single script editor. You'd have the writer's room with the head writer who would have his overarching plan for the series. It, it is a prototype that other showrunners since have talked about. Joss Whedon has talked about mm. it. Joe, Joe Michael Straczynski has talked about the influence Blake 7 had on creating shows like Buffy and Babylon 5. Mm. I think one other thing probably with Blake 7, jumping a bit, the end of Blake 7, 
I think also stands out amongst sci-fi series as it is a very well I think it's probably the most memorable and different ending I think really of any series I would put the series finale Black 7 against any other series finale up until this present day without any hesitation mm. uh, I mean it's very different really to, to how most sci-fi series end I mean if you look at again if you look at the Treks next gen ends with them playing cards around a table you know and they've suddenly just welcomed Picard into their card playing group yeah, probably the closest to it in the genre would be the end of DS9, where I think something like five or six of the characters or the recurring characters are written out, and Cisco's like not coming back. Mm. Um, but even then, you've sort of got well, you know, they've at least beaten the big bad of the series. Blake yes. Seven doesn't. And, no, it and doesn't. I, and I think it's not a spoiler to say that Blake Seven does not beat the Federation. No. And I mean, even something like there's an episode, and it's towards the end of the series. There's an episode called Orbit. And I, I really can't think, the last 10 minutes of Orbit, I don't think I've really seen anything like that much anywhere else. There, there's possibly an episode of Firefly that, that potentially comes close, uh, or a couple of instances in Firefly, perhaps. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I, I, I know the episode you're thinking of as well. Yes. Yes. But really, that, that is very atypical of sci-fi at that time. Yes. The, these are genuine anti-heroes. A point I want to make is, again, just to reference that, that space technology. The Liberator is a wonderful spacecraft. Even down to the guns that they have, the weapons they have, are a very distinct design. It's very consistent throughout those first three series. The teleport bracelets, the way they're done, the way the tech works. It looks look, it looks like a cheap 70s show, but at the same time, the imagination is like just, just on the screen. I think that's the thing. Look, probably we might talk about this in a minute. I mean, look, it is 1970s BBC sci-fi. So time and money are, are always your enemy. But I think there is a feeling in Blake 7 that the production team are really, really trying to create something unique and different and create something that, that, that you haven't seen before. Um, whereas, you know, you probably get some of the Doctor Who ones. I mean, some of the Doctor Who productions look a bit tired. You know, they're just going through the motions. I think that the production team here have really made an effort to try and create something different. It is. So we mentioned a couple of ships there. We need to talk about... The fact that in Series 4, they get a new spacecraft. Yes, new spacecraft and, of course, new sets. New sets. I really like Series 4. I think there's a lot of very good stories in Series 4. It does have a couple of the worst episodes of the series in there. Um, let's let's give animals a shout-out now. <laughs> but once Series 4 gets going, I think it's really, really good. And, in fact, the fact they haven't got the Liberator anymore, they haven't got this just... You know, kick-ass spacecraft that, you know, it can outrun the Federation, it can outgun the Federation. They're now in basically a cargo ship they've stolen. Mm. It does raise the stakes a bit. It it does. Series 4, I I remember probably not getting a lot out of Series 4 when I first saw it when I was young, but watching it back now, I actually think Series 4 is, there are a lot of very, very good episodes in there. And again, I I think Blake 7 probably lost its way a little bit across Series 3. Yes. But I actually think Series 4 brings it brings it right back. Yeah, I agree. We also should mention that in terms of big changes, Blake leaves at the end of Series 2. Yes. Which, for a show called Blake Again, 7... spoilers. Well, look, I, I think it's fairly well known now that Blake you know, leaves famously at the end of Series 2. <laughs> and they continue with Avon. That's simply a case, I believe, of Gareth Thomas just was over it. He, he was. And, and look... There are a few cast changes across the series, and, and some of those left really because they, they probably had had enough of the series, and we'll maybe talk about those in a minute or two. Let, let, let's talk about some of the characters. I want to first of all talk about the baddies, or the really baddies. So we encounter Supreme Commander Serverland, 
played by Jacqueline Pierce, who is mad as a cat snake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows on screen. But she is the basically the head of the military in the Federation. It's never quite established exactly what the Supreme Commander's role is. We know that she answers to the High Council, uh, but she is basically in charge of the military. Yes. And so she's the one who's in charge of stopping Blake. To do this, she hires a bloke by the name of Travis. Yes. Now, Travis and Blake have some history. And Travis, I think to put it bluntly, uh, has well what would now probably be called post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> or indeed, he's actually just psychotic. Yes. Yes. This is, this is a guy who is the product of a military whose job is to oppress civilians. Yes. And he is very good at his job. You may tell the president that I am appointing a space commander to take absolute control of this matter. He will be exclusively concerned to seek, locate, and destroy Blake. Oh, excellent. Excellent. May we know the officer's name? Yes, you may. Space Commander Travis. I understood that Travis had been suspended from duty, pending an inquiry into the massacre of the civilians on the planet Oros. And I have satisfied myself that Travis acted correctly in this matter. The civilian deaths on Oros were unavoidable. Um, There are other incidents on his record, um, unfortunate incidents. He has caused the administration some political embarrassment in the past. Uh, In dealing with even minor insurrections, he has been... uh, Overzealous? Oh, don't be afraid of the word, Secretary. Ruthless. Committed. He does his duty as he sees it, and he sees it clearly. There is that sort of bleak and dystopian oppressive element there, because at the time Travis is appointed to lead the hunt for Blake, he's actually on suspended duty for having murdered a heap of civilians. Yes, the the massacre of Oros. Yes, and then later in the series, we find that he's not responsible for just one of these. He's done it. He's done it a second time as well. Yeah. So a completely nasty character, as you say, out of a very dystopian military, who goes from just being okay. My next task is to go and capture the Blake, to being absolutely obsessed with this to the to the point that he actually leaves the military and just it just becomes his personal crusade to destroy Blake. Yes, and and then. That even snowballs beyond Blake to really, he now just hates humanity. Yeah, so again, a very interesting arc for the baddies, but two really great characters there. That If you're going to have a series that is the goodies versus the baddies, both sides of that equation have to be interesting to watch. Yes. And in this case, they definitely are. Um, and Serverlane really, particularly as the series progresses, I mean, she is very much the counterpoint to Avon. Yes. And, and written most times equally as well. Yes, that's true, actually. Some of the other crew we need to talk about. Now, the one person who appears in all 52 episodes... Yes, is, of course, Michael Keating's Villa. Yes. Who, in some ways, sadly, I think in some ways he probably gets a little short shrift because, particularly in the later series, where he really just is sort of relegated more to the comedy relief. So he's on the prison ship because he's a thief. and um, A compulsive thief. A compulsive thief. And the first time you meet him, he's... Basically, he's trying to steal Blake's watch. And he's a very sinister character. He, he is. Villa in the early episodes has this sort of very... Uh, I mean, look, he's a coward, but he is an extremely proficient thief. But he does have this sort of you know, darker underside to him where he says... I steal things. Compulsive, I'm afraid. 
I've had my head adjusted by some of the best in the business. But it just won't stay adjusted. Yeah, and, and unfortunately some some of that sort of um that, that sort of harder edge to the characters lost later on where uh, I think yes, he, he really just becomes sort of the, the comic relief. Yeah. Villa at his best is, is wonderful. And and Robert Holmes, who writes four scripts for Black Seven, writes Villa very well. Yes, he does. That needs to be said. Um, he does. And and look, in, in fairness, later on, uh, Chris Boucher does give him his own story where really he is the hero. Yes. And and, does, and gets the girl as well. Yes. And and defeats Colin Baker. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Colin <laughs> Baker as Baben the Butcher. <laughs> A notorious episode. A notorious episode. <laughs> While we're mentioning the characters, and this might be a bit of a segue into some of the weaker parts of the show, but the, the show has got a number of women characters within the, in the crew of the Liberator and later the Scorpio. They all, I think, start very well. In the first series, you've got Jenna and Kelly. In the third series, you've got Dana, as played by now Dame Josette Simon, who uh, is now far too good for Blake Seven, she believes, unfortunately. Yes. And you have Sue Lin in series four. I would contend, sadly, of those four, only Sulin finishes as strongly as she started. The, the sad one is probably Jenna, because she starts out as an extremely well-written character. Yes. Every bit as, as well-written as, as the male characters. But one probably of the negatives with Blake Seven is, as the series progresses, the writers, and I think probably also, sadly, the production team, probably decide which of the characters they're going to focus on and which of the characters really are going to get the, the material, which... Yeah, it leaves the other characters, unfortunately, really as, as, as sort of almost set dressing at times. Yeah, so Jenna was a smuggler. Yes. And she's been caught smuggling. She's a very capable woman. She's very capable of looking after herself. She is a very good pilot, and for a long time, that's sort of her niche. She's the one who pilots the ship and has all that. But she just, as you say, gets less and less to do. I think she comes off better, though, than Callie, who meets the crew as a freedom fighter and by the end of her run, it's kind of just a wet blanket. Yes, well, she's sort of the ship's medic and conscience almost, really, at the end. Yeah, um, she's not human, she's an Aron, so she has very basic telepathic abilities, which is, you know, that, that classic 70s sci-fi trope. Yes, that, that sometimes they remember to use in the episodes and sometimes <laughs> they don't. Yeah, and but again, I think of all of them, she's the one whose character just devolves the most, and that's yes. very unfortunate. Dana doesn't get off too badly. I just think... Again, they don't quite know what to do with her. No, and I think, unfortunately, she's probably so overshadowed by Avon and, and, and indeed by Tarrant. Um, I think that the rest of the crew really becomes very much secondary to them. Yeah, it is. And you mentioned Tarrant in there. He was introduced as the, in inverted commas, replacement Blake character in Series 3 and 4. Not in that he had a similar character to Blake, but he was there for Avon to play off. Yes. And, and, and to, you know... Uh, but be the notional heroic character. That's right. I must admit, when I first saw Stephen Pacey as Tarrant, I didn't much like him. You know, he's not as good as Blake, he's not as cool as Avon. But when you think about the fact that this was Stephen Pacey's first really big TV role, he's really, really good in it. Yes, he is. And he has gone on to have really quite a, a good career. I've learned to really appreciate his character a lot more as time goes on. They do have an interesting uh, interplay between him and Avon for about the first half of Series 3. Until the episode Sarcophagus, where Avon basically just smacks him down once and for all and establishes himself as the alpha male. Which isn't too bad, except that, you know, where do you go with Tarrant then? But he's, he's also the replacement pilot, so he, you know, he can pilot all the ships, which is important. 
<laughs> and, and, and it is a point made that um, it's a talent, though, that is easily found, so Avon you know, doesn't have to rely on him compared to Villa, whose talents are actually extremely rare. So even though Villa annoys Avon, Avon needs him. Yes. Yes, until, of course, we get to uh, get to their, what is one of their climactic scene together. Yes, in, in orbit, as we've mentioned. <laughs> so, look, yeah, look, great characters, great sci-fi, plots, arcs, lots of things to love in here. We will now talk a bit more honestly about what we see as the flaws in the series. I'm going to start with Series 3, which I think is by some margin the weakest of the four. It really is. There is a seismic shift, really, in both the cast and the focus of the series at the end of Series 2. And it it takes, I think, the series, what in production terms would be probably a couple of months um, in terms of of filming the episodes to to really get back on track. I think the second half of Series 3 is better than the first half. I'd agree with that. Overall. There's actually very good stuff in there. When you look at stuff like Death Watch... City at the Edge of the World. And Rumours of Death. Rumours of Death. Even yeah. something like Moloch. Yeah. Well, Moloch's got a couple of cheesy moments, but it's got a couple of very cool moments as well. It, it has. And, and, of course, Terminal. Yes. Probably compounding the issue with Series 3, the storyline they'd initially worked out, they then abandoned yes. at a fairly late stage. So they don't necessarily gel as a, as a coherent... I mean, suddenly at the start of the season, Avon's the one everyone's worried about, and then suddenly for an episode, uh, The Harvest of Kairos, um, <laughs> it's suddenly Tarrant is the one everyone's concerned about. Yeah, and it does jar if you're watching them mm. one after the other. But look, it, it does pick itself up. Again, Series 4, I love Series 4. It takes three or four episodes for it to find its feet. Series 3, after they'd had the cast changes and Gareth Thomas had gone, Series 3 was intended to be the final episode. But the, yes, the now quite famous story is one of the BBC drama controllers was sitting there watching what was to be the final episode, thought, oh, actually, really, yes, this is this is great. We should make another series of this. Rang the BBC and said, make sure you put a continuity announcement at the end saying it'll be back next year, uh, which was a complete surprise to the production team and the cast. And the cast, they're all watching, thinking, you know, what an amazing finale. We've, you know, done all this stuff. We've wrapped it up in a really definitive way. And suddenly, Blake said, we'll be back for a new series next year. And they go... <laughs> Okay, we better start writing some scripts then. <laughs> and, and yeah, look, it, it does take them a while to get back in there. Uh, they they do though get go back to a couple of classic writers. I mean, Robert Holmes has two scripts in series four, which are probably two of the stronger ones. Yes. Um, I mean, he also has two scripts in series two, which are both very good. Let, let, let's face it: you take the sort of characters you have in Blake Seven and give them to Robert Holmes to play with. And he just has a lot of fun. Yeah, he with does. Them. And they have a lot of fun with his script. They do. It, it really is. I mean, Paul, Paul Darrow and Michael Keating have said many times in interviews that if they just saw the next episode was by Robert Holmes, they're like, right, this is just going to be great. Let's have some fun. Yes. Again, he probably falls into the trap that they were the two characters he wrote extensively for, but... Well, again, they just work so well with Holmes' writing style. Mm. Uh, but they also get a number of other writers in there. But yeah, look, both Series 3 and 4 do take a while to establish themselves and to essentially re-establish the premise of the show. Yes, you probably also get a couple of newer writers appear in the series there, and I, and I think one in particular tends to get singled out for a fair bit of criticism, which probably doesn't help with the, the series feeling somewhat uneven. It, it also has a new writer like Tanith Lee, who mm. was very rarely at this time a female writer, and she writes two stories that 
you've said before in conversations we've had, if you buy into the premise of them, so we're talking sarcophagus and sand. Yes. If you buy into the premise of what she's doing, which is slightly more science fantasy, well, it's a lot more science fantasy. Well, they're they're, they're really outright science fantasy, I would yeah. for but... If you buy into them, they're very enjoyable episodes. If you are looking for hard, you know, space battles and space stuff in space costumes, it's not. No, they are very atypical episodes. Sarcophagus particularly, look, I've, I've always quite liked sand. Sarcophagus, again, that's one that, as a kid, that meant nothing to me. As an adult, though, I really get what she's doing, and it's actually a very cool character plot. There is some experimentation in those series, partly because Terry Nation's gone as well. He writes three episodes for Series 3. And, and he really had no involvement in Series 4 at all. Yeah, so when you take him out of the mix, you've got to find new writers. I think we alluded to the fact that, look, it's it's 70s UK SF. And, and again, the, the story there is it replaced a cop show in the BBC's production, Softly Softly Task Force. So it also inherited a cop show's budget um, and a cop show's production scheduling and methods, uh, which were t- uh, totally unsuitable for a series like Blake 7. The point's been made numerous times that they were absolutely exhausted by the end of Series 1 because they had to run around with, with and, and make sure they had all this stuff in the can. So time and money always with the BBC really are not your friends. Uh, they are always a problem. There's also, I think, pro- probably one other point, and it's a, it's a really... Not left field, but one other point, and it's probably slightly different. I think anyone concerned about the lack of diversity in casting in, in 1970s television, I, I don't think he's going to find anything here to uh, to change their views. No, it is very white male dominated. Yes, it is, really, until we get into the later seasons. But there probably is maybe some slightly more diverse casting, perhaps, when we get in a little later. But... Uh, really, yes, it is. It is very much white, Caucasian, male. Yes, and, and you know there are a couple of even what we would now term problematic episodes. If you look at something like Bounty, which has the race of well, let, let's say the space Arabs. Yeah, the race of space Arabs. <laughs> yes, it probably also doesn't help that Bounty isn't a very good episode no, in and it's, of itself. It's, but it's, it's a very poor episode, and the the the, the decision to make the uh, bounty hunting race a race of. Arabs in space Arab costumes, it's, it doesn't help at all. Uh, some of the dialogue, now I think we live in an era where people are generally more SF or genre TV aware. This was really made at a time when, let's face it, the world had gone nuts for Star Wars, which had come out, what, 18 months earlier. So there is a lot of people, yes, in, in doing space things in space situations with space equipment and, and these at times quite long convoluted explanations of how space concepts work that I think an audience now really would, would just pick up with, with one or two lines of, of, of short dialogue. Yes. They do go to a lot of effort to explain the tech, you know, how the force wall works, how the computers work. Oh, we haven't mentioned Zen. No, actually. Ooh, bigger mission. Yeah, so we'll, we'll just yes. divert at this point and just say the Liberator is controlled by a, what would you call it, an AI computer? Yes, his name is Zen, and it's something you see particularly, I think, in UK UK sci-fi, where the computers and artificial characters actually have a personality. If you look at something like, say, Crichton from Red Dwarf, um, or you look at Eddie in uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then you compare them to the computers that you see, say, in Star Trek, or any of those where they're just these flat, monotonal 
things. So Zen, Zen is the computer that controls the ship, um, and he acts obviously as a focal point for them to, to operate the ship. Yes. And he is quite famously played by Peter Tudnam, who said he had the best job because he just got to sit in a little booth, he didn't have to learn any lines, and he would just read during the production. Yes, as people brought in drinks. Yes. <laughs> he also played the ORAC computer. Yes, and that really is a major plot point which, which we skipped. At the end of the first season, the crew come into the possession of a supercomputer, which is basically a Perspex box full of flashing lights. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's basically conceptually the internet. Yes, it is. The computer is called ORAC, and the idea is that all Federation computer use these modules called Tarial cells. And ORAC can read anything with a Tarial cell. I mean, the tech in Blake 7 in some ways, because this is pre the software revolution, the tech is really very hardware based. So when they want to go and modify Zen, because there's an episode there where they want to go and modify Zen, Avon has to physically go in and start pulling circuit boards out and making changes to the circuit layout so he can bypass the Zen computer. Yes. Uh, whereas um, now it would be completely software. Yeah, that, that's that's right. But yeah, Aurac gives them a whole new level of tech that is very interesting. Again, he's a computer with a personality. And then later when they introduce the Scorpio, it has a computer as well that controls it called Slave. Yes. Which is very different. Yes, who is sort of this wheedling, sort of Uriah Heap type personality. Yes. Yes, but no, very, very cool part of the show, those, those things. <laughs> Final thing I want to mention, and I didn't quite know where to slot this dot point, so I'll slot it in with a, with a critical look, and that's Gan. Yes. Gan is an interesting character because when you look at Gan at face value, he seems like very much a you know fifth wheel, doesn't really have a role to play. But when you look at his character through other lenses, there is some potentially very dark and nasty stuff going on there. Yes, and I, I think that is a subject of some debate I think in fan circles as to exactly what Terry Nation's intention with Gan was because there is a very definite sort of subtext to Gan that he he is a criminal and he is ostensibly on the ship because he is a murderer and he has a device placed in his brain called a limiter which stops him well his explanation is it stops him from killing people but there is an episode where his limiter starts to malfunction and he becomes increasingly violent and particularly towards the female characters on the ship, which, of course, leads to this whole interpretation that that he is some form of violent sex offender. There's a couple of aspects that point to this. One is that he mentioned several times when he sees an attractive and vulnerable woman that his limiter is giving him a headache, Mm. which sort of implies that maybe that he's repressing impulses. But when his limiter not just starts to break down, but actually cuts out completely, he's a very nasty, manipulative, yes, violent person. because his attacks... Well, he attacks Callie. Yes. And that is... The lead-up to that is actually extremely calculating yes. in the terms that he wins her trust. Yes, and even the way that he deals with Avalon when he's on... When she's on board the Liberator mm. is... I don't know whether he's going for innocent, but it comes across as creepy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is, again... Uh, look, I don't think David Jackson playing him was the best actor. 
No, and, and his interpretation or his idea of Gan was radically different from that. Yes, he was very much the gentle giant sort of thing. Just on the Gan discussion, there is a book called Liberation, which gives a very good assessment and treatment of how you can interpret the Gan character. It's published through Telos Books, and it's by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore. But there is a very good discussion and examination of Gan in there. Yes, that is a very good book. It actually looks at a lot of the plot points in a lot of detail. Yes, and it does make the point that both Chris Boucher and David Maloney, um, so script editor and producer, that wasn't what they were aiming for with Gan, but they have acknowledged that that could well have been Terry Nation's intention, especially considering he had written that sort of character previously in Survivors. I was exactly about to mention Survivors and some very similar stuff. So, yeah, look, it's interesting where you get various different interpretations of a character. An actor who, look, he's not a bad actor, but of the regulars, I think he is the one that is at the bottom of the pack. Yes. I, I, I suppose having said that, though, he very quickly is the odd one out and really has nothing to do. Yes. And it has been said that they were writing fight scenes and things in, into episodes just so he would actually have something to do that, that week. Yes. And look, we won't tell you how he's killed, but he is the first character to be killed off in yes. season two. And it, it, it does kind of come out of nowhere, mm. which, which again is a very good part of the series. We've been to be talking about the critical flaws. We've actually, I think, talked about some of the more interesting aspects, which just shows <laughs> what we think about this series. So we'll move on. In these podcasts, we like to talk about why a Doctor Who fan, who you know, has hopefully been listening to the Doctor Who show podcasts, why a Doctor Who fan would enjoy Black Setter. The, the first and most obvious one is, look, it's made by nearly all the same people, really. If you are into 70s Doctor Who, it's a lot of the same people are working on Black Seven. And that's not just in terms of writers and script editors. We're also talking in terms of the special effects team, the model makers. I mean, look, a lot of the models are done by Ian Schoons. Yes, we should mention Dudley Simpson. Yes. Who was doing basically all the music for Doctor Who at that point and now does all but, I think, three or four episodes of Black, Black Seven, Seven, including the theme, which I think is a wonderful piece of music. And, and famously, normally when you're creating a television theme or set of opening mm. themes, you do the music first because it's much easier to match graphics to music. In this case, they actually presented Dudley Simpson with the graphics and said match your music to that. That's right. And he, he does a very good job at it. Stuff like the Federation theme is really powerful, but he does a really good job throughout that. mention is there's, there's always this sort of fan story or fan legend and I think it has a certain amount of truth in it that there was a generation of people in Britain, not all boys but mostly boys, who discovered Doctor Who or got into Doctor Who properly with the Purple years under Barry Letts and Terence Dix. They then grow up and sort of become 12, 13 year olds at the time that Hinchcliffe and Holmes are doing their stuff which is very much pitched as you know Robert Holmes used to say the smart 13 year old Doctor Who was sort of growing up with them you then get to the Williams era, which, look, I really like the Williams era, but if you're a cynical 16, 17-year-old, it's probably not for you. No. Suddenly along comes Blake Seven, which it's made by Terry Nation, David Maloney, Chris Boucher, you've got Robert Holmes writing for it later, all the production crews, you say, and it is 
darker, it is nastier, it is grittier, and that is just tailor-made for somebody who has sort of grown out of Doctor Who at that point, is looking for the Hinchcliffe era, and just goes, this is this is for me. And I think a lot of fans did sort of cross over to Doctor Who. Oh, I think so. At the time. Oh, I think so. It, it proved, I think it proved quite popular with the Doctor Who audience, yes. Yeah. Also worth mentioning, particularly for fans of new Doctor Who, that, as we said, Blake 7 really was the prototype, and it's credited by many people as being the prototype, of these arc and character-driven stories. You don't get new Doctor Who without Babylon 5 and Buffy, and you don't get those shows without Blake 7. No, that's correct. I mean, you can, you do feel its influence on a lot of 90s and post-90s television. Yeah, I look, Firefly, I think, is the closest we get to Blake 7 in any other show. Yes, I would think so, yes. Great shame that Firefly was cut off. Look, there, there are moments in Firefly that I think just come, come straight out of the Black Seven script. Mm. Um, and look, maybe we'll talk about Firefly sometime in the next 12 months. Maybe we'll, for that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do another episode on that. So yeah, look, there's a lot there for a Doctor Who fan to enjoy. We now have a segment where we talk about how far a new viewer should stick with this and what a good sample episode would be. I'll be interested to see, Richard, how close we are in our opinions of this. My view is that you probably need to give it six episodes... And if you've got nothing out of them, then there's probably not going to be much for you. Because by then we've established the universe, we've brought the baddies in, we've had a couple of adventures. If you're getting nothing out of it, you're probably not going to get much more out of it. No, I, I wouldn't think so. That That's much what I had. I think the core heroic cast is assembled by the end of episode four. And then you have your main baddies are in place by the end of episode six. Um, and as you said, the show is well and truly set up by that point. So I think if you yes, if you've got to episode six, which is called Seek, Locate, Destroy, if you've got there uh, and you're really not getting out of it, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think, I would suggest sticking with it. No. That said, I do contend that when you get to series two, which opens with Redemption and then has the first two Chris Boucher episodes, uh, Weapon and Shadow, there is, a, there is a step up. There is. I think series two... To, to watch the later ones, you probably need at least a grounding in the series and how it works and what the what the ideas and concepts behind it are. I think some of the Series 2 episodes would be a bit strange, I think, perhaps if you went into oh, the cold. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not saying you should dive into Series 2. I'm just saying that if you are kind of enjoying Series 1, yes. Series 2 is a big payoff to that. Yes. And, and to be honest, look, I think there are probably some of the later Series 1 episodes that you could possibly skip. Oh, look, you could skip... Bounty oh, I think you could skip Bounty without missing a beat. Breakdown, look, I think that going back as a fan and watching Breakdown, there's a lot I can get out of it. Mm. Watching it the first time, I was like, this is just a level low. Yes. Um, um, and I actually think Deliverance is probably another one. I think you could quite comfortably... Uh, aside from the fact that there is a small amount of setup for the final episode, I actually think you could skip Deliverance pretty happily as well. Yeah. Whereas, I look, there, there probably isn't an episode in Series 2 that I would miss. Even hostage, I would give time of day to. And in terms of picking one episode as an example or a sample that we suggest, if you just want to see, am I going to get anything out of the series? What's a good episode? I'm going to suggest Project Avalon. Snap. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, can you tell me why you picked it then? Snap. I, I, my honourable mention was uh, probably may also have been a, your secondary snap, which was an episode called Countdown from Series 2. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think Pro- Project Avalon, it's the ninth episode of the first season. And I, I think by that point, all the basic things of the, sh- all the basic tenets of the show are in place. 
It's not particularly what we would call arc heavy. Plus the other things I think with it is it really, all the characters get something to do. I think it is actually a very well structured episode in the fact that I don't think any of the characters really are left behind. It has both Servaline and Travis as your two main bad guys in it and they have a really quite devious plan. Yes, and they're quite nasty. I mean, there is a massacre in that episode as well. Yes, there is. And look, it's actually not a bad episode in and of itself. Yes. I mean, they even make that... uh, There is a robot uh, that comes, (laughs) a security robot that we see during the episode. And even that's actually quite sympathetically shot and lit and and kept to a minimum because it isn't a very good robot. But... Yeah, and look, I was very close to picking Countdown, as obviously were you. Countdown is a very good story. It's very what we prefer to as template Black 7 in terms of, you know, it, Blake arrives on a planet, the planet's in revolution, the Federation are oppressing them via various means and they've got to deal with it all. It's got some good stuff with Blake, it's got some really good stuff with Avon, and then it's even got a recurring Doctor Who actor who turns up as the main uh, antagonist. Yes. So that's very good, but it is very arc-heavy, whereas Project Avalon, as you say, you can just drop into mm. and enjoy. It's not the best episode, neither of these are the best episodes, but I think they're very typical ones to see what the show's like. Uh, we're now going to talk about who our favourite character is, although I'll let listeners know we made an agreement beforehand that we were going to do our favourite character aside from Avon, otherwise it just would have been too easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, your turn to go first. Who have you picked out with perhaps a couple of honourable mentions? Probably the two I've picked are Villa and Blake for different reasons. Villa... When, when I watched Blake 7 when I was a child, it was really probably even more than Avon. Probably Villa, I think, was, was the ident- character I identified most with there. And again, look, probably because he had a lot of the, the funny one-liners and, and was really, the, the, in some ways, the, the sort of the lighter character. But watching them later, and we sort of alluded to this earlier, I am actually picked Blake because I, I think watching them as an older teenager or as an adult... Blake's character makes a lot more sense and the nuances of Blake's character really start to come out. And I don't think you really get that probably watching it as a child. So I've gone with those. I had two honourable mentions. I would have liked to have picked Jenna and maybe if she'd stayed as she was in the early episodes and they'd written her that well later on, I think she really could have been. And I think actually really could have been a a, a female science fiction character like a trailblazer character, I think, yeah. really, if, if she'd been consistently written that way throughout the series. And we probably should make the point um, that, that Sally Nevette, who played Jenna, actually wanted to leave the series at the end of the first season because she could really see that the character, obviously, was, was going to slip into the background. But she was contracted for... Uh, they'd already taken an option on her contract for the second season, so um, she, she had to stay. The other one I, I did pick, and, and leading on from our, um, from our GAN discussion... Had Gan actually been overtly written as a, as a sex killer controlled by his limiter, that, again, could have been a really quite interesting and, and again, for the time, very atypical character. Yeah, look, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. In terms of my honourable mentions, I also had Blake in there. So yep. for, for all the reasons you said, very well acted, very, very well written. I actually put Travis down. Because I think for a bad guy, there is a lot of in Travis. Series 1 Travis or well, Series 2 Travis? So we, we should mention, Stephen Grief, who played Travis in Season 1, wasn't available for Series 2. No. And so he was replaced by Brian Croucher. The character was being written very differently in that series, and Croucher plays it very differently. And I, I, look, I, I think that had Croucher played him for the entire two, 
no one would have a problem. It's just because he's different to Greek that people have a problem. He, he is, and he probably has a slightly troubled start, I think, in the role. Yes. Which, which really doesn't help. No, but look, I think you take Travis as a whole. It's a very good character. He gets a very good arc. He makes a very good bad guy. And there's, there's a lot to like. But I've actually picked Sulin as my favourite. Wow, well, okay. Sulin is only in the fourth series. She is a very strong character, and she gets some wonderful lines all the way through that. You know, I, I, I love that line where the uh, the android, Muller's android, is uh, trying to tempt her. Join us, Sulin. We can fulfill your every desire. You wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> all the, all, you know, even, even the bit like, you know, where she slaps Pieri in Assassin. You know, she goes toe-to-toe with Avon in a really good way. Uh, she's a gunslinger. Look, I just think she's a really good character. Glennis Barber is a really good actress. Mm. And I think had there been a fifth series, she would have really come into her own. In that. That, 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 I think, is the greatest shame about them not being a fifth series, is that we didn't get to see more of Sirling. That's a really interesting choice. We, we probably also should put a shout-out to, to Servalane. She's a very strong and well-written female villain, really at a time when you didn't get that sort of character. Yeah, if you imagined Grand Moff Tarkin from Star Wars mm. as a woman, yes, that, that actually is very close to what Servalane is. Yes. And the other thing that is very interesting about it is that they allow her to be a very powerful character and a woman, but also she is written as a woman in that she knows that she has... A sexuality, and she's willing to use that to manipulate people. Yes, she's not just sort of you know a female character trying to masquerading as a bloke in a dress. Yeah, really. She's, so, she's a fully rounded female character. Yes. Next segment is where we talk about our favourite episodes again with a couple of honourable mentions. So it's my turn to go first and. Again, we'll see how many snaps we have across here. <laughs> the honourable mentions I went with were Trial, Orbit and Redemption. In Trial, Travis is put on trial by the Federation, basically to um, whitewash some scandal away. Yes. And there's some very good dialogue there. There's some very good analysis of things. Plus, and look, spoilers, it's the story after Gan is killed. And it actually spends an entire episode of talking about how each of the crew deal with that, particularly Blake and... You can read it a couple of ways, whether Blake is genuinely guilt-ridden and needs to work it through, or he wants to be seen to work through guilt so the crew trust him again, which is very cleverly written. I really like that. Orbit is a Robert Holmes episode. It's a great Avon Villa episode, and the last 10 minutes are as intense and disturbing as anything you'll see in mainstream TV sci-fi. Plus, it has John Savage just giving the campest performance <laughs> you will ever see. Savage! My steel queen, my empress, the only reward I crave is a place in your affection. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Redemption is a very classic sci-fi story. Uh, the Liberator's owners come back to basically try and recapture it. And look, it's just classic sci-fi, very well done. But my favourite episode is Rumours of Death. So that's an episode from Series 3. There is a revolution on Earth, and the crew of the Liberator basically walk into that for reasons of um, that I won't go into. But there you get some, again, really intelligent and thoughtful analysis for how a revolution might look, mm. about how a revolution can fail, and there's some really good emotional drama in there. The stuff with Avon and Shrinker, who's the uh, Federation's premier torturer, that's just nasty and disturbing and dark. 
and brilliantly played. I, I really, really like this episode. There's so much I can give in there. But yeah, Rumours of Death is my favourite. Okay, Richard, um, how many snaps and hell have you got? There, there were a couple of snaps in there, not for the favourite episode. It was on my list of honourable mentions. Okay. Um, so some honourable mentions I had, I'm very fond, it's the second episode of the series, I'm very, very fond of the episode Spacefall. Yes. And a lot of that is because that is a great performance from Leslie Schofield, who plays the main antagonist in that episode. That is a really nasty performance he gives. I went for some others. I, I did have rumours of death on my uh, honourable mention list. Anything you want to add to what I said? No, I, I think it's an extremely well-written episode. As I said, it's probably it's not the one I've gone for. It, it was close. I've also picked uh, Blake, the final episode, again, and we talked about how what a shocking ending that was to the series. Uh, Orbit, for the same reasons you have, it's a greatly well-written script. And as, again, as we touched on earlier, the last 10 minutes of Orbit really are incredibly atypical in, in really sci-fi in general. Oh, absolutely, they are. It, it is amazing. But I've actually gone for Star One. Wow, okay. Which, uh, which is the, the final episode of Series Two. And the reason I went for Star One is probably because what Star One really represents, because it is a number of things. It's really the end of the Blake arc. In some ways, it's the reset of the Avon arc. It also ties up the entire first two series worth of narrative. It also is a reset, really, of Servalan's arc as well, because she also, as for a bad for a baddie, has an arc that really travels across the series as well. And the interesting thing is, it does all of that, and it's actually the shortest episode in duration of, of all fifty-two. There is a lot happening in that episode, and I think it doesn't really miss a beat. I think it, it's an extremely well structured and put together episode, and it does tie up and and change all of these plot threads. And I agree; it's a great episode. Whilst it's doing all this plot stuff, it's still in itself a very tense, dramatic episode that just builds and builds and builds. Yes, because there, there is also this whole story going on when, when, when they actually come into the situation. Yeah, and, and the last five minutes of that is just incredibly intense. And it finishes on a season cliffhanger, which is very, very cool. Mm. But yeah, very intense episode. I, I like all of your picks. Yeah. We also like to talk about our guilty pleasure episodes on these podcasts. I've got three written down, a decision plus some honourable mentions. Yep. But Richard, it's your turn to go first. What are your guilty pleasure, Blake Seconds? All right, and I suspect we might have a couple of snaps here too. I again had Orbit in there because I think, particularly as coming to that as a fan, you can watch that and just totally, for 45 minutes, just be utterly entertained by Orbit. I also, again, I had Spaceful because, again, I think that is just such a good episode and you can watch that purely and simply just for Leslie Schofield's Raker. Yes. Um, yeah, that that is really quite a chilling performance. The Doctor Who fans, Leslie Schofield, of course, was in The Face of Evil. Yes, that's right, uh, Tomas. Yes, he's also in Star Wars. He is. But the one I've actually gone for, and it was one of your picks for earlier, is, is Trial. Okay. Tri- Trial really has three plots going on. We, we mentioned earlier it's about Servaland wanting to quietly dispose of Travis by setting him up for, a, for a, a trial to get rid of him so she can cover up some of her own blunders. Yes. It also has the Liberator crew dealing with the death of Gan, and then it takes a sidestep with how Blake particularly deals with that, which involves him actually teleporting alone down to what he thinks is an uninhabited planet. Now, I will say with Troll, yes, there is a lady wearing a sort of a rubber sort of chicken suit, <laughs> um, which, which is a bit of a, a drawback, but... I think the thing that I like with Trial, there is a lot of very, very clever and well-written dialogue in Trial. 
And it has what is, I think, probably one of my, if not my favourite scene in the entire series, which is a scene where Avon and Blake, and it really does lay out um, a lot of the, what is underpinning their relationship. Yes, it, it really has Avon trying to point score with Blake. I'm going down on my own, Avon. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing at all, but it occurs to me that if you should run into trouble, one of your followers, one of your three remaining followers, might have to risk his neck to rescue you. And you must advise them against that, Avon. Oh, I will. They might even listen to you this time. Why not? After all, I don't get them killed. But really, at the end of it, Blake actually just really shooting him down. One of these days, they are going to leave you. They were almost ready to do so this time. Yes, I thought they might be. You handle them very skillfully. Do I? But one more death will do it. Then you'd better be very careful. It would be ironic if it were yours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, some very good picks there. My guilty pleasures, and there actually weren't any snaps, although I had mentioned mentioned, them. I guess I mentioned them as favourites. Yeah, okay. We did mention them, but... I've got two runners-up. One of them is Headhunter. Look, the conceit of Headhunter is just bobbins. It is just stupid. And the execution isn't much better. But within that, you have some really witty dialogue, some really good scenes. Uh, Avon is great. Suling is great. It's, 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 it's a very enjoyable watch, even if it just makes no sense. Yes, you can you can watch just to have a uh, fun along with the, with the cast, yes. Speaking of which, uh, my other honourable mention is The Harvest of Kairos, which is kind of... Blake Seven's answer to the horns of Nymon in that, look, there's some good ideas in there, but it is just so badly done <laughs> and so overplayed that you can watch it and just have a guilty enjoyment of it. Yes. <laughs> look, it's the, one, it's, it's the one that has the, the chauvinism stuff in there. It's got the giant space spider, which I think John Nathan Turner famously watched and said that he's never going to be on my Doctor Who. <laughs> But the one that I've actually picked as my guilty pleasure is Voice from the Past. Wow, okay. Because this is an episode, again, a lot of the central conceit of this doesn't quite work. It's the idea that one of the governors of one of the outer planets of the Federation is going to lead a rebellion against the Federation administration. Uh, And the Arbiter General has defected, and they're basically going to expose the corruption in the Federation and try and take it over. That's a very cool idea. Uh, they basically manipulate Blake into being part of it, and, and, and it goes from there. Yes, some of the premise doesn't quite work. A couple of the performances in there are appallingly bad. But I really like the idea. I like the way that it lays out, and the climax is actually really, really good. And the, the final Danny Moore on that episode, I think, is one of the most iconic scenes in yeah, the story, yeah, where, where Servalan appears on the, on, the, on, the, on the screen. Yes. In, in the theatre. That's... that's Really, really impressive. So, look, I, I like it for that reason. And there's a lot of Blake 7 episodes that do fail in terms of production or aren't as good as we would like them to be in terms of production, but they get through on the basis of the script, the wit, and the character. And I think that probably sums up why we love it. Yes, indeed. Yes, it's a great series. Look, it's well worth checking out if you've never seen it. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, look, as I said, it is, it is my favourite sci-fi series. It, it does pick Doctor Who at the post by just a tiny fraction, but I absolutely love it. So, Richard, thank you for coming along and uh, indulging in this with me. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. It has, it has. So we are releasing this podcast on the 2nd of January, which is the 40th anniversary 
of Blake 7 first Good game to end, which says a lot. Uh, if you are interested in Blake 7 and you haven't seen the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed... Oh, yes. I strongly recommend just go to Twitter, do a search for Making Blake 7. A whole lot of stuff's been archived there, but somebody there has basically spent the last year chronicling the development of Blake 7 from conception through to production basically in real time. There are production photos, production notes, interviews, stuff I have never seen. No, before. a lot of really rare photographs um, and behind-the-scenes shots. There's there's anecdotes from the cast. There's anecdotes from the production team, the model makers. As I said, there's original designs for the sets, uh, for the props. It, it's an amazing repository. Yeah, how they went about casting the actors who, who wasn't cast. It's just amazing stuff. So if you're really into that, Blake 7, I recommend that. Certainly recommend the Liberation book. That is a very good reference book. Um, and there's a lot of fiction coming out now. We're not going down that path, but there's a lot to love about Blake 7 and a lot of people who still love it. Next time we'll be back in a couple of months where we're going to have another special guest and we'll be looking at Star Trek The Next Generation. So moving into the 80s there. And uh, I've definitely got some favourite episodes and definitely got some guilty pleasures <laughs> with, with TNG. So we look forward to that. But in the meantime, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net on Twitter at the dwshow or on Facebook forward slash The DW Show. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin MacLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.